Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, did you love listening to stories when you were a kid? Of course you did. The art of a good tale, well told, has the power to draw us in, transport, transfix, and enchant us. It's a wonder we don't listen more than we do. So here's a chance to dive back in. The Palswood Storytelling Festival celebrates the wisdom and power of all kinds of stories. It takes place every summer now in a charming garden in Federal Way. KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore listened in on July 23rd and came back with these tales. We'll start with the story of a boy named Jack striving to become a man. You can uh, always tell when someone is from Appalachia or has lived there because they say Appalachia rather than Appalachia, Lachia, Lachia. Uh, We had some kids here yesterday and I was telling them about Appalachia and I said, you can remember it because it's as if you were to pick up an apple and throw it at you, throw an apple at you. So... um, some folks already know, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, this is a, a concert of um, stories with an Appalachian twist, so I thought I would share a traditional Appalachian story with you, or an Appalachian version of a traditional story, I should say. Well, Jack was getting on to that age, that age where on the outside he looked like a man, but on the inside he was not a man yet. Still a bit of a boy, a boy in transition. And he went to his mom and said, Mom, it's time for me to go out and seek my fortune in this world. And she said, Jack, you ain't ready yet. And he said, No, Mama, look, I'm a man. I am ready. She said, Jack, you ain't. And he said, Yes, I am. And she said, Well, Jack, if you truly are going to go out into this world to seek your fortune, promise me one thing. No matter where you go and what you do, you will not go down to that little stone building by the river where all the fellas do all the gambling. (laughs) So when Jack left, of course, the first place he went (laughs) was down to the river, that little stone building where the fellas did all the gambling. He went in, and even though he was new to this gambling hall, they turned around and immediately welcomed him in. Jack, come on. And soon he had learned all their ways, playing cards, shooting dice, how to ante, how to collect a lot of money. And that's what he did. He collected a lot of money because he was good. He was a natural at playing these different games. And soon everybody knew that Jack was the best in that gambling hall. Everybody would try to see if they could one-up him, to best him. And one day the door opened up and in came this stranger, a fellow that no one had seen in that part of the hills. He stepped forward and said, I'm the best that there is, and I want to be put up against the best that you have. And everybody turned to Jack. Come on up here, stranger, Jack said. They came, he came up, they sat down, they ended up, dealt cards, and soon Jack had won this game and the fellow's money. Well, uh, play again. They played again, and after the next game, Jack had won more of that fellow's money. And as the night went on, he had won all of that fellow's money. And just before he was set to leave, he said, Jack, 
I have one other thing I can lay on this table. Back at my home, I have a number of beautiful daughters. And if you will play me one more time, I will place one of them on the table. If you win, you get to keep all that money you've already won for me, and you get your pick of one of my daughters. If I win, I get all my money back and never see you again. That sounded like a pretty good deal to Jack. So he said, all right. They shook on it. They placed their bets. The cards were dealt. When the game was over, Jack was the victor. I guess I'll be seeing you pretty soon there, won't I? One of those beautiful daughters of yours, the man said. So it is. Let me go out to my horse to get all that gold that I owe you. As he went out the door, all the fellas in the gambling hall were congratulating Jack. Well done, Jack. You did it. Let's have another round for Jack. After some time passed, they realized that man did not come back in. They went out to find him, and he had gotten on his horse and rode away without paying Jack what he had won. Now, contrary to the beginning of the story, Jack usually obeyed his mama, and he had had a good raisin, and so he knew that that wasn't the way that you were to treat someone. And so he set out. He left that gambling house and went out to find this fella that owed him all the money and one of his beautiful daughters. He went for many weeks, stopping at all the little hollers here and there, asking around if they knew about that fella, Until one day he came to this place. It was a mansion of mansions. You could almost call it a castle. Tucked back in the hills. Boom, boom, he knocked on the door. And when it opened, a familiar face was looking right at him. It was that man. Now what Jack didn't know was that this man was a king. He was an evil king. One that didn't care about the well-being of other people. He looked out the door and said, What do you want? Jack said, well, hello there, sir. I believe you owe me some money and one of your daughters. Jack looked past the man. He could see into the house, and there was this room right back there, and there was a table, and there truly were beautiful daughters sitting all around. The man said, you found me. Come on in. Jack came in. The king closed that door. He locked it, and then he turned around and said, <laughs> but here you don't have all those other guys to help you out. Now, do you, Jack? Jack wasn't paying too much attention because he was looking into that room where all those beautiful daughters were. He started with the first one, the oldest one. He looked on down and around the table till he made eyes with the youngest one. Ah. And those daughters had not seen a man other than their father in that castle for quite some time. And they were taken. Ooh, who's this young man? Finally, Jack looked back and said, Now, what was you saying? And the king said, Jack, I said that I'll let you have the gold and one of my daughters if you can complete a task for me tonight. You're already locked in, so you might as well try. Jack said, All right, tell me about this. He said, Well, I'll tell you later when the sun starts to go down. When that time came, the king led Jack out to his barn. He said, now, Jack, I have this barn here. It's full of stalls, and this barn ain't been cleaned out in seven long years. It's pretty full. Now, if you go back to the castle, you find on the back of it two shovels. You get your pick of shovels. You come up here. You shovel out this barn. If you can shovel the whole thing clean by the time the sun rises tomorrow, 
you'll get the gold and you pick a one of my daughters. Jack said, and if I can't? The king said, well, I'll cut off your ears. Jack fell on it and said, well, he wanted to be a man. He thought that men were good to their word. So he said, all right. The king said, great, I'll see you in the morning. He went down to his castle. Jack followed not far behind, and there indeed were two shovels on the back of that castle. One of them was brand new. The other one was old. The pan of it was all rusted out, almost had holes in the metal right there. The handle was all splintered up. That won't do me no good, he said. So he took the new shovel. He went back into the barn. There was that first stall. Oh, it stunk to high heaven. He shoveled the first load. There was a window right above it, and he heaved that shovel full of, you know what, out the window. It flew out the window. He pulled that shovel back to get the second, and as he pulled it back, two shovelfuls came in through the window and landed right there on the pile. He tried again, got a shovelful, and heaved it out the window, and when he brought that shovel back, two flew back in. Well, that ain't right. He went to the next stall and tried it there. One out, two in. He went to the next one. One out, two in. He worked as hard as he could for a whole hour. And when he was done at the end of that hour, there was more there, twice the amount than when he'd started. He worked as hard as he could for some time and then stopped because he wasn't getting anywhere. When he heard a voice come from behind him at the door of the barn. Hello there, Jack. He turned and looked, and it was that oldest daughter. (sighs) What do you want? She said, I come up here to see what's going on. And he said, I'm shoveling out this barn trying to. Your dad's going to cut my ears off if I don't. And the more I shovel, the more it comes back in. She said, oh, how's that working out for you? (laughs) Not good, he said. I'm going to lose my ears in the morning. She said, well, Jack, tell me, which of the shovels did you get to use for this task? He said, this new one right here. She said, oh, that's your problem. You need to go get the old shovel. That's the one that will help you out. Really? Try it. He went down. He exchanged the shovels. He got that old shovel, brought it back. And one shovel in that first stall, he heaved it out the window. And ten other shovelfuls lifted up and flew out the window. He went to the second stall, heaved it out. And twenty lifted up and flew out the window. And before long, he shoveled the whole thing clean. And that oldest daughter was standing there watching him as he did it. And when Jack was done, he was back around to where she was standing. He said, thanks, you were right about the old shovel. She said, don't forget that I was right. And don't forget that I helped you out. He said, all right. She disappeared out the barn door, went back down to the castle. Jack had cleaned out the stall, so he laid down in one of them, went to sleep. The next morning, he was up with the rooster. So was the king. The king was coming up towards his barn. He had a butcher knife that he was sharpening. He got to the barn, opened the doors. Well, Jack, Jack was standing up there. Hello there, king. Jack. Did you clean out this barn last night? Sure did. (laughs) No, can't be. Surely someone came up here and helped you out with this. You couldn't have done this all by yourself. Well, I had the shovel in my hands. 
And I scooped it out. I was the one who did it. The king looked at Jack and said, ain't no way. I don't believe you. So you're going to get a different task to do tonight. When the nighttime came, the king led Jack out past the barn, out to a far field, a field where he saw seven horses that were running through it and then stopping and then running and stopping. The king said, Jack, see those horses right there? Those horses used to be my horses, but they've gone wild because for seven years my barn's been full and they had no place to go. See the tallest horse right there, the big one, the one that's a hand taller than the rest? That one was my prize horse. Its name is Ragliff Jagliff T. Tartliff Pole. <laughs> Jack said, what? The king said, it's an old story, Jack. It's called Ragliff Jagliff T. Tartliff Pole. If you can get a saddle onto it, all the others will follow it when you ride it. Now, I've got a little shed not far from here that has two saddles in it. You can take your pick, come out here, saddle Ragliff Jagliff T. Tarliff Pole, lead those horses into the barn that you cleaned out last night, and I'll be good to my word the next day. But if I come back tomorrow and you haven't caught them all, <laughs> I'll collect your ears. <laughs> See you, Jack. And he went back to the castle. Oh, how do I keep getting into this? Jack went to the shed, and there in the shed, indeed, were two saddles. One of them was a brand-new saddle, newly oiled. Ooh, it looked great. Bright, shining buckles all over it. The other saddle, though, was old. The leather on it was cracked. The strips were threadbare. The buckles were rusted and starting to break off, and so Jack picked up the new saddle. He went out to the horse field, and he snuck up behind Ragliff Jagliff T. Tartliff Pole, and just as he went to throw that saddle right on its back, the horse trotted a few steps ahead. Oh, shoot. He tried it again, and the horse trotted ahead. Well, Jack wasn't good at learning fast. So he kept trying and trying for the better part of two hours. And when he finally took a break, standing there trying to figure out how he would get Ragliff Jagliff T. Tarliff Pole back into the barn, he heard a voice from over his shoulder. Hello there, Jack. He turned and looked, and it was the oldest princess, the oldest daughter. Oh, hi. What are you doing out here, Jack? Oh, I got to get this saddle on to Ragliff Jagliff T. Tarliff Pole so I can get the horses down into the barn that I cleared out last night so I can keep my ears. Your dad's making me do it. Well, how's that working out for you, Jack? Not good, he said. I went down and got this saddle and won't get, I can't get it onto the horse. She said, oh, well, which saddle did you choose? He said, this new saddle right here. The other one looked awful. She said, that's your problem, Jack. You need to go get the old saddle. The old one is the one you want. <laughs> really? Didn't it work last night? Yeah, okay. He went down and got the other saddle. He brought it out to the horse field, and no sooner had he lifted it up than Ragliff Jagliff T. Tarliff Pole just walked right up to him. He put it on and saddled him in. Jack climbed up on the horse, and all the other horses followed him back. He took him down there to the barn. He put each of the horses into their stalls. And just before he laid down in that other empty stall, the oldest daughter had made her way down there. See, Jack, I told you. You were right, he said, and don't forget it, she said. 
She went back to the castle, and Jack fell asleep, and the next day he was up with the rooster. So was the king, sharpening that butcher knife. Ooh, ears. <laughs> A trophy. He made his way up to the barn, and when he opened the barn door, can you believe there were all of his horses right there in the stalls? Jack, he said. Did you get these horses in here? Jack said, yep, sure did. <laughs> no, someone surely came and helped you with this. Jack said, no, I had the saddle. I put it on Ragliff, Jagliff, Titarliff, Poe, and like you said, they all followed down here, and I just fell asleep in this empty stall right here because I had plenty of time last night. King said, Jack, there's no way. I don't believe it, so you're getting another task tonight because this is a folk tale. We need three things to happen. <laughs> Well, Jack didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> now, when the nighttime came, the king had led Jack up onto the highest cliff in all of his part of these hills. From that cliff, they could look down and see this great forest, the top of it. And the king said, Jack, do you see this forest here? Jack said, yeah. He said, do you see that tree at the other end of it that's taller than the rest? Jack said, sure thing. I see that over there. The king said, great. At the top of that tree, there is a nest. And in that nest, would you believe it, there are seven eggs. I need you to go get those seven eggs and bring them back to me so I can have them with my breakfast tomorrow morning. And if you can't collect them, Jack said, I know my ears, I understand. The king said, that's right, good luck. And the king went away. Well, Jack made his way down off of that high cliff, down into the woods, and what he didn't know from up there was that underneath the canopy of trees, there was actually a great lake down there. Well, how am I going to cross this? He made his way to the edge of the lake, and there were two boats. <laughs> one was a brand new boat, and the other one was old. It had holes in it. He wasn't quite sure how it was floating right there. And just as he was going to step into that brand new one, hello, Jack. He turned, and it was the oldest daughter, who at this point was not looking so bad anymore. <laughs> what are you doing there, Jack? He said, I'm getting into this boat so I can go across this lake to get to that high tree to get the eggs out. And she said, are you going to take that old boat? And he said, yes, or the new boat. He said, yes, of course I am. She said, don't you want to take the old boat? Should I? Yes, the old one is the one that you want, Jack. You're missing the point of the story. <laughs> he got into the old boat, and there was room enough for her to get into it, too. And when they untethered it, it just seemed to move all by its own. And since they didn't have to paddle, they had plenty of time to do a little bit of courting in that boat. When they got to the other side of the lake, they got out, and there was that tree. Jack looked up. This tree was so much bigger than he had even expected, taller by far than all the rest, and the lowest branch was at least 50 feet off the ground. Well, what am I going to do now, he said. There's no way I can get even up to that first branch, not let alone get up to the, the eggs at the nest at the top of the tree. And she said, don't worry, Jack, I can help you out. He said, you can't how? She said, here. He looked at her fingers. They had long nails on them. He said, well, what do you mean? She said, just take my fingers and use them to climb up the tree. And he watched as... <laughs> she took her fingers off. 
and suddenly the attraction disappeared again. <laughs> Trust me, Jack, she said. Have I led you astray so far? No. So he took her fingers, put one into the tree right there in the bark, and the nail went right in, and he climbed up onto it. He took the next finger, went over and up a little bit, put it in, climbed onto that one, up and over and around and around. He climbed up that tree. As he was running out of him, he'd pop, 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 pull some out and put them up. So he made his way up and around all the way to the very top of the tree. And there were the seven eggs. He put some in his pocket, some in these pockets. He had a little poke around his neck. He put some there. And then he began to climb back down with those fingers. When he got back down, she said, Jack, did you get the eggs? Yeah, I got them. They're right here and all here. Oh, great. Give me my fingers back. He said, all right, here you go. And she put them back on. Pop, 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 pop. Uh-oh. I left one at the very top of the tree. She said, well, never mind that, Jack. I didn't use that one very much anyway. <laughs> really? He said, you just want to leave it up there? She said, yeah, we got to get back home before the morning comes. Or, Daddy, will take your ears. He said, you're right. So they went down and got in that boat. And as they were sailing back across that lake, she started talking at him. Now, Jack, we've gotten to know each other a bit over these last few days. Don't you think that you could just tell daddy that we like each other so that you don't have to keep doing these impossible tasks to try to win me? Yeah, I guess I could, he said. Great, she said, I got a plan. <laughs> Here's how it's going to work out. Tonight, there's a great big party, a masquerade ball in honor of daddy, the king of this part of the land. What I want you to do is spend today making a costume. Show up at that party. When you get there, dance with everyone till you find me. And when you do, I'll lead us right to the very front of the party and we'll announce to everybody that we are in love. And Jack said, we are? She said, yes, I'll announce to everyone that we are in love. And Daddy will see. And then you won't have to keep going through all these impossible tasks. He said, but if it's a masquerade party, how am I going to know which one is you? She said, oh, I think you'll find me. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> when they got to the other side of the lake, she went down to the castle, and in the morning when he met up with the king, he had all those eggs. He gave them to him, and the king said, Jack, you must have had some kind of help. And if I weren't having a big party tonight, I'd give you another task to do, but tomorrow night you'll get one. And Jack said, all right, now get out of here, he said. And Jack did get. He got and he started making a costume. He collected some feathers from out in the woods. He kind of poked them here and there all around his clothing and fashioned a cover for his face. And when the night came, there was a truly grand masquerade ball. He made his way into it, and there was drinks and food and music playing, a little band, bum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-dum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum. And Jack looked around and saw all these people in different costumes. Well, I better find her. So he stepped right up and took his first partner. And one, and two, and turn, and step, and dip, and count, and seven, eight, nine, Ten. Well, that's not her, so pass her off and start all over again. And one and two and turn and step and dip and count seven, eight, nine, ten. He danced with every one of the ladies in this party, and they all had ten fingers. 
He went around a second time and counted again. They all had ten fingers until he was back in that corner just scratching his head right there by the food and drink tables when the bathroom door opened up and out came another dancer. Ah, he grabbed her up and danced and they turned around and around and when he dipped her, he counted six, seven, eight, nine. It's you, he said. That's right, she said. She lifted her mask, it's me, and then she put it back down. He lifted her up and said, well, should we tell your daddy? And she said, I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) Why not, he said. Because today, daddy came and said that since you can keep completing all of his impossible tasks, that He didn't want to see you and me together ever again. Because if he did, it wouldn't be his ears that you get cut off. It'd be your head. Oh, no. He said, okay, well, uh, is he here? She said, oh, yeah, he's right behind you. (laughs) What? What are we going to do? We got to get out of here. She said, I know. I got a plan. (laughs) What I want you to do is go outside. I've got Ragliff, Jagliff, Titarliff pole waiting out there. Get them all ready. I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to change out of my costume, get everything ready up there. I'm going to come back down. We're going to get on Ragliff, Jagliff. We're going to ride off into the darkness of the night, off to someplace far away. And since we are in love, we'll start a family over there. We won't have anything to do here with Dad or anybody else here. And Jack had nothing else to say, but all right, He went out the door, and there was Ragliff Jagliff, and she made her way upstairs. She changed out of her costume, got into some dark clothing so she couldn't be seen in the darkness of the night. And just before she left, she took an apple, and she sliced it into seven pieces. She took two of those pieces and set them on the pillows of her bed. She took two more pieces and put them on the foot of her bed. She took two more pieces and placed them on the floor between the foot of her bed and the door, and then the last piece she put right there by the door. She slipped out, closed the door, went down, there was Jack and Ragliff Jagliff, and she climbed up, and they started to gallop away in the cover of the darkness of night. Well, the party went on, and when it was over, the king made his rounds as he did every night to check on all of his daughters. And when he made his way to his oldest daughter's room, the door was already closed. He called in, Daughter, are you in there? And the two slices of apple on the pillow called back, Yes, I'm here. Go on. And he went on. Meanwhile, in the forest, they were riding through the darkness, getting away, thinking about what their future would be like. Later that night, he made his rounds again to check. He made his way back to the oldest daughter's door. He knocked, and when he said, Are you still in there? Is anybody with you? The two slices of apple at the foot of the bed said, I'm here, and I'm alone. Good. Later that night, when he came back, he knocked on the door and said, Just checking. Tell me, are you in there? And the two slices of apple on the floor between the foot of the bed and the door had started to shrivel up a little bit and called back, Yes, I'm here, little tired. And when he came for his last check, he knocked on the door and said, Daughter, are you asleep yet? And that one piece of apple that had shriveled up so much at this point, right by the door, called back, Almost asleep. The king said, that doesn't sound like my daughter. He opened the door and saw that she wasn't there. Ah, they've gotten away. They've tricked me. He ran down to his horse stable. He went in and the first stall was empty where Ragliff Jagliff Titarliff Paul should have been. Ah, they've gotten away on him. He got on his second best horse and started riding through the darkness of the night, right in the direction that he thought they had gone. 
Now, the next day, as the sun had come up, Jack and the princess had gotten off of the horse. They'd stopped for a while to get some berries and eat a little bit that morning. When off in the distance, they saw a cloud of dust that was kicked up. What could that be? As the princess watched, she said, He's my father. He's coming after us. Quick, get on Ragliff Jagliff Titarliff Pole. They got on the horse and took off riding, galloping just as fast as they could. And as they went off in the distance, the king seemed to catch up. He was making space, getting closer and closer to where they were. And Jack said, well, what are we going to do? And she said, I have an idea. Look into Ragliff Jagliff Titarliff Pole's right ear. (laughs) What? (laughs) Jack, just do it. He lifted up the horse's ears. They were galloping along, and there in the ear was... A little twig. What am I going to do with this? She said, take it in your right hand. Throw it over your right shoulder. And as you do, say nothing but clear roads before us and a forest and brush and brambles behind us. He took that stick in his right hand. He threw it over his right shoulder. And as he did, he said, clear roads before us, forest and brambles and bushes behind us. And when the stick hit the ground, right in front of him, everything cleared up. And behind him, a forest shot right up full of brambles and bushes. And the king rode right into it, into that darkness. And later that day when they had stopped to have some lunch, they looked off in the distance behind them and saw the same thing. Clouds kicked up again. Here he comes again. We got to get back on Ragliff Jagliff Tarliff Pole. And away they were galloping. But he made speed, getting closer and closer to them. And Jack said, well, what do we do now? She said, look into his left ear. She lifted up the horse's left ear and there was a little drop of water. Well, what do I do with this? She said, take it in your left hand, throw it over your left shoulder. As you do, say nothing but clear roads before us and the great red sea behind us. He took that drop of water in his hand. He threw it over his left shoulder. As he did, he said, nothing but clear roads before us, great red sea behind us. When it hit the ground, clear before them, the red sea stretched out right behind him. And it was so close to where the king was that he couldn't stop his horse. And the horse just galloped right down into it. And the king was fastened so tightly into the stirrups that he could not get loose. And that was the last they saw of that king. Well, Jack and the princess, they were galloping off just so fast that they rode in some direction for some time and came to a place where the princess looked around and said, I don't know this place. Where are we, Jack? Jack looked around and said, I do know this place. This is my home. I can't wait to show it to you, introduce you to all my friends. But before I do, there's a place I need to go. Anywhere, she said. Anywhere you need to go, Jack. He led Ragliff Jagliff right down to that stone building by the river. And when they got there, she said, oh, Jack, no, don't go in there. Because she recognized what that place was. He said, no, no, I have friends in here. I just need to go in and tell them that I'm home. And she said, Jack, don't go in there. Promise me you don't need to be with that crowd. That's an earlier part of your life that you've grown out of now that you're with me. Jack said, just please let me go in just for a minute. She said, Jack, I will let you go. But if you do, promise me you won't let anybody hug you. You won't let anybody kiss you. Because if that happens, surely you'll forget all about me. I promise. He went in, and no sooner had he opened that door than all the fellows stood up and turned. Jack, they said, you're back. You've made it home. And they ran up to give him a hug. He said, get back. Don't touch me. And they all stood back. He said, I'll tell you all my stories about where I've been, but I can't let none of you come near me, all right? They said, sure, we just want to know where you've been, Jack, we missed you. They put a chair down and they gathered all around him. And he began to tell stories just like we are seated here. And he told stories and no sooner was he into that first story than from the back of the gambling hall, the dog heard Jack's voice 
His ears perked up. <gasps> Jack's home. Took off running just as fast as he could. Jumped right up into Jack's lap and... <laughs> and with that, Jack looked around and said, Well, what are we sitting here for, fellas? Get the cards out. And he stood up and started gambling. And before long, he'd won a lot of money and said, let's go celebrate. And as he filed out of that door and everyone followed behind him, the princess saw him coming. He walked right past her, looking in his eyes like he didn't even know who she was. And she realized what had happened. Now, at this point in her life, she didn't want to go back home because her true love was here. So she stepped down from her upbringing and took a job as a house servant for a wealthy family right there. She took to cooking and cleaning. And Jack, now that he'd returned home, I mean, he was young, he was handsome, and he was rich. And word spread around pretty soon that he'd taken him a fiancé. And when the princess heard about that, she set to making these three little magic boxes. On the day of the wedding, she crept over to where the church was and knelt behind a window that was opened up. It was a hot day, so the windows were open. And in the very back of the church, Jack and his fiance, the whole bridal party, they were waiting. And just as the organ music started to play, she took that first box, threw it through the window. It hit on the ground. It opened up. Out of it came a silver rooster and a golden hen. The rooster pecked at that golden hen, and it started to cluck. Cluck, 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 cluck. Did you forget about me and helping you clean out the barn with that one shovel? Jack stood up tall and said, who's talking like that at my wedding? Keep playing, organ player. The organ player turned up the music, and it was the kind of music that meant they needed to start walking down the aisle. She could see that he was coming, so she took that second box the princess did. She threw it in through the window. It hit on the ground. It burst open. Silver rooster. Golden hen. The rooster pecked at the hen. Cluck, 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 cluck. It called out, did you forget about me and Raglif, Jagliff, Titarliff, Poland, helping you with the saddle that one day? Jack stopped for a minute and said, I know that name, but I can't think of who that is. He kept walking down the aisle. She took that third box. She threw it in. It hit on the ground. Silver rooster. Golden hen popped out. The rooster pecked at that hen, and the hen started clucking. Cluck, 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 cluck. Did you forget about me and give you my fingers and helping you get up to that tree and all those eggs? And suddenly Jack's memory came back to him with those words. Yes, he said, I do remember that. I don't know who's talking, but I remember that. I remember that I have a true love, and it's not you. I can't marry you. I'm sorry. He took his fiance, put her hand in the hand of the best man. Hold on to her for a little bit. As he ran out the back door, see, she was just marrying Jack for his money. And the best man was also rich, so the wedding continued. <laughs> Jack ran out the back door, and there he saw Ragliff, Jagliff, Titarliff, Pola, next to the horse, the face of his true love. It's you. That's right, Jack, she said. It's you. You saved me. You saved me my whole life. You've taught me a lot of things. How could you still be here with me? And she said, Jack, because I love you. He said, and I love you. They got up onto the horse. They rode off far away from this town to the county seat of the county. They had a wedding. It was not fancy. It was right there on the steps of the courthouse. And to wit was a horse named Ragliff, Jagliff, Titardliff, Pole. And the three of them lived, as they say, happy ever after. Thank you.
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Adam. Well, I'd like to introduce the next teller by telling you something he said about storytelling. He said that sometimes when he tells a story, the audience hears more than he knows he's telling. So he has to listen back to them. And I think that's the reason that this teller has this incredibly close relationship with his audience. And I know that all of us here are ready to welcome back and ready to listen to Donald Davis. Thank you. It's so much fun to be here with Adam. Uh, we come out of the same world of stories. I grew up with so many, many stories about Jack. And the, I loved hearing this story about Jack because it's a story I would hear from my grandmother, but people don't understand, especially folklorists collecting stories, that those stories were never told exactly the same way. It, it was like playing jazz. You would have, you know, a theme of a story, but a good teller would riff on the story in very different ways. So in, when my grandmother was telling the story, uh, it might be that one of the tasks would be to go chop wood with an old axe and a new axe. Or to cut a hay with an old scythe and a new scythe. And then I remember one time in a story when she was not finished with us and the king gave Jack a fourth task to do. <laughs> and Jack looked back at the king and said, I've been in a thousand stories and I've never had to do things more than three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was... It was so home with those stories. Thank you. It's just, we're right there. And it was never something that was wrote. It's always something you just played with. And that was so, so, so much fun to, to be there. My father was number eight of 13 children. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1850. Uh, he married and his, he and his first wife had five children. Three of them died of whooping cough uh, before they were four years old. He then uh, married my grandmother, and they had eight more children. Uh, my dad was born in 1901, and he used to tell me that when he was a child, the only thing they had to buy was salt. Uh, they lived on a farm that was way back in the north end of a county called Haywood County in North Carolina. More than half of Haywood County is Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Blue Ridge Parkway, and the Pisgah National Forest. And they didn't buy salt because they liked the taste of salt. They bought salt because that's the way you would brine things to preserve pickles and vegetables of all kinds, and that's the way you would cure meat. Basically, that's the way you would cure pork. Uh, they really didn't eat beef. They would kill one unweaned calf a year to get the stomach lining for rennet to make cheese. And so they would have that veal once a year, but they never had a beef cow because there was no way to preserve that meat. But you could salt the pork, you could smoke the pork, or you could hunt. And my dad used to say when they were little, they had to go hunting. He said, every, you know, everything that we shot, we ate. And then one day he was telling me about one of his first jobs was to take a twenty-two rifle and go up to a new ground 
and sit above the new ground before daylight after they had planted the corn for about a week. Because just as the corn would begin to sprout, the crows would come at daylight and pull all the corn up. And so his job was to shoot the crows. And I said, did you eat the crows? Because he said they ate everything they shot. He said, no, that's not what I said. I said, everything that we shot, we used for food. We shot the crows so we'd have corn to eat. (laughs) It's an amazing world to think that everything they wore, they they made. They raised flax. My grandmother scutched scutched and then then hackled and then dyed and and wove and, and, and made linen. They did everything. Everything they ate, they produced. Uh, My grandmother would be cooking for 11 people, and every single thing she cooked had to be something she had raised, something she had put up. Well, I got to be about the seventh grade, and one of my good friends, Danny Boyd, got a 410 shotgun for Christmas. And that was really exciting because he was going to go squirrel hunting with a shotgun. It was a 410 shotgun. It would knock the squirrel off the limb, and then you run and beat it to death with the gun butt. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon, one of my friends, Joe Kathy, got a single shot 22 rifle for his birthday, and he was going to go squirrel hunting with the 22 rifle. And I said to my daddy, I want to go squirrel hunting. He said, What for? I said, Because I'm going to bring meat home. My daddy said, we don't need to do that. We go to the store. I said, but when you were little, you said you went hunting all the time. He said, let me tell you about the first time they ever made me go hunting. He said, remember, my daddy, my grandfather, was in the legislature. And every year they had a 40-day session in January and February. So he was always gone January and February. And Mama had to take care of all of us for those two winter months. And in December, he said to me, Joe, we need to go out and see if we can shoot a deer so your Mama will have something to feed you till I get back. He said, we got up in the middle of the night. And we headed out in the dark and we went way up in the cove. And he he gave me a shotgun, and he made me stand against a tree. And he said, now, Joe, don't move. Let the deer come to you. If you hear a noise and you move, you'll scare it off. I'm going to go up to another tree so we'll have twice as many chances than if we stay together. Well, my dad said he stood there by that tree. He thought he was about 12 years old. And, and, and every time 10 minutes passed, it dropped 10 degrees. It got colder and colder and colder. And then he t- said to me, he said, you know, we never did really get cold until one day daddy went to town and bought a thermometer. <laughs> and when he brought that thermometer home, We about froze to death. We got so cold that Mama took that thermometer and hid it in the bottom of the cedar chest so we wouldn't be so cold anymore after that. 
He said, but that night, it didn't matter if we had a thermometer or not. It just got colder and colder and colder, and I thought, I'm going to freeze to death. We don't need to shoot a deer because I'm going to be dead. <laughs> and I stood there, and I stood there, and finally, I heard something behind me. It was moving. I could hear it coming through the leaves and through the brush of the woods, and I wanted to turn around and look, but Daddy had said, don't move, let it come to you. Don't move, let it come to you. And I stood there and stood there and stood there, and very gradually I could see something moving, and here it came, slowly, slowly around in front of me through the woods. It was a big buck deer. It had five points on its antlers, and walking right against its side was a doe. And it came on around, and when it got right in front of me, it stopped. It was a perfect shot. And I very slowly eased the shotgun up to my shoulder. And when I got it aimed, just as I began to slip my finger in close to the trigger, at that moment, the deer looked straight at me. It looked right in my eyes. And I could see it breathing and its breath making mist in the cold air. And I could see its pulse in its neck. And it wouldn't look away. It just looked straight at me, and I looked straight at it. And we stood there. And then the deer turned, and the, and the buck looked at the doe like he was telling her goodbye. And I couldn't pull the trigger. I just stood there and we looked at each other. And we kept looking at each other. And I didn't realize that while the deer and I were staring at each other, the shotgun was gradually sinking, getting lower and lower and lower. And I didn't realize that as the shotgun was sinking, my finger was getting tighter on the trigger. And all of a sudden, the shotgun went blam and knocked me flat on the ground. And as soon as I looked up, both the deer were gone. And Daddy came running. Joe, Joe, did you get one? Did you get one? Did you get one? And I stood up and he said, what did you shoot? And I pointed at the hole in the ground. <laughs> And then I told him the whole story, and instead of getting mad at me, he said, Joe, if that deer had done me like that, I wouldn't have been able to shoot it either. He said, son, here's what you need to tell your friends. When they tell you that hunting is a sport, you tell them that in a sport, Half the time, the other side wins. <laughs> and if you want hunting to be a sport, leave your gun at home and go barehanded. And then it'll be fair. He said, one of the greatest days in my life was when I got a job and got a paycheck. And I knew... I could go to the grocery store and buy meat and that I would never again have to stand in the woods and freeze. <laughs> <laughs>
But I was about 13 years old. Do you think I was impressed? I wanted to go out in the woods and shoot something. And I kept begging, and I kept begging. And I'd tell him about my friends that would go, and how my friend Joe had now shot a deer, and, and how Danny was, would go get squirrels. And finally one day my daddy had enough, and he said, Okay, I think it's time for you to go squirrel hunting. Pick somebody to go with you, and come over here to the house one afternoon, and I'll go out and show you how to shoot. See, I knew that there were two guns in the closet at our house. I knew that because those guns had stories that went with them. One of them was what my daddy called a Model 63 Winchester auto-loading 22. It held 14 bullets in the gun stock, and it would shoot 14 times as fast as you could pull the trigger. It was my daddy's mother's 22. She had given it to him when she got too old to shoot, and he told me that was the gun he had used to shoot the crows at the cornfield. The other gun in the closet was a pump-action 20-gauge shotgun, and it had a story that went with it, too. It was in Prohibition. My parents were not married yet, and my daddy boarded with a family named the Blaylocks. One night, the Blaylocks were not home. My dad was there by himself. He was in the kitchen fixing him something to eat when there was a knock at the kitchen door. He opened the kitchen door, and there stood a man with a shotgun who said to my daddy, I know John Blaylock has some whiskey, and I want it. And my dad said he knew that John Blaylock had some whiskey, too. And it was in the kitchen cabinet. And he went over and he got down the bottle of illegal whiskey. And he walked over and he gave it to the man who was holding the shotgun on him. The man reached out and took the bottle of whiskey. But he couldn't get the lid off. So he handed my daddy the shotgun. And he took the lid off the whiskey, took a drink, turned around, walked away. And my dad closed the door and kept the shotgun. And so now it was sitting there in the closet. Well, I invited my best friend, David Morgan, to go squirrel hunting with me. He came over to our house one afternoon, and my dad took us out into the woods, and we killed about 25 tin cans. Yeah. And now we were trained and ready to go. Well, the plan was on the next Friday afternoon when school was out, we would take my daddy's old 51 Plymouth, and we would go out to my Uncle Frank's house. That was the farm where my dad had grown up. And we would go up into the cove, spend the night, and early before daylight the next morning, we would go out and we would bring game home to our families. Now, now, David didn't have a gun, and my dad said, that's okay. He can use the shotgun. We knew nothing about squirrel hunting, and from the start, things did not go well. See, our plan was to go out, drive up in the cove, have a nice camping trip, cook our supper, pitch our tents, spend the night, 
that afternoon, by the time we had bought our groceries and got to Uncle Frank's house, it was almost dark. So we did drive in the dark up in the cove. We got the car stuck once. Uncle Frank came with a a tractor and pulled us out. By now, it was dead dark. And so instead of pitching a tent, we decided the smart thing to do. See, by now we were 16 years old. We were smart. (laughs) The smart thing to do was sleep in the car. And when it was all over, we actually told one another that we had slept. Way in the night, we decided it was time to get up so we would have a head start on the dawn. And we headed on up in the cove. I had the twenty-two. David had the shotgun. We found what looked like a good place. We could see squirrel nests here and there in the trees, and we would wait for it to begin to break daylight, and the squirrels would come out. Well, sure enough, a little squirrel came down a tree, and David said, which one of us is going to shoot it? I said, you go first. He got the 20-gauge shotgun, shot the squirrel. We found the head way over there, and the tail was way over there. We never saw the rest of the squirrel, and that's when we knew my daddy had sent us off squirrel hunting with a 20-gauge shotgun just to hear what happened to us along the way. We took the shotgun back and put it in the car and decided we would take turns with the twenty-two rifle. We spent most of that morning, and by the time the morning was over, we had shot three squirrels. That's enough. Because David told us, told me, I could have all three of them. He didn't need to take one home where he lived with his grandmother. So we headed home. I took David home, drove back up to our house, and I got out. I'd taken my daddy's old duckback hunting coat, and I had those squirrels stuck in the pocket in the back. And I was very proud when he opened the door, said, did you get anything? And out by their tails, I pulled my trophies, three fat gray squirrels. But Dad said, that is wonderful. That'll be a good supper for us tonight. What? Well, you shot them, we're going to eat them. What for? <laughs> for supper. Because if you shoot something, you got to eat it. He said, Let, let's go around so you can clean them. I said, do what? <laughs> so you can clean them. I don't know how to clean them. I'll tell you. Notice, he did not say, I will show you. No, no, I will tell you. He came out from the kitchen with a sharp knife and a a dish pan, and we went around into the backyard, and he said, now, here's what you do. Get hold of the squirrel and take take the knife. said, there are different ways you can do this, but I'll show you the easiest way for the first time. And he got me to, to cut the, the skin of the squirrel right around the middle, right halfway between its head and its tail. 
And then he said, now get your fingers in there. Get them, this one in there under the skin. And then get the under the skin. And now you start pulling toward both ends. And pull and pull and pull. And the skin started turning wrong side out. Here this thing started coming out of there. And it kept coming. And finally, the worst part is, you know, it's skin. It's over its head and over its tail. And we had this little old cat that's name was Pitiful. And Pitiful came around the house just as I had the skin half of that squirrel. And that cat saw what was happening. And that cat stood up on its hind legs. And its eyes got about that big. And it went and turned and ran the other direction and went to the top of a pine tree. And wouldn't come down. <laughs> Finally, I got the skin off of three squirrels. And then I had to gut them. And then I had to cut their heads off. And then cut their tails off. But my daddy said, keep their tails because they have meat on them. <laughs> like a pencil has meat on it. <laughs> And then we took that stuff inside to my mother. They said, oh, Lucille, look, here's the squirrels. Now you can fix supper. And my dad said, I've planned the menu. We're going to have a nice meal tonight. Like, like a, we used to have when I was growing up, and we had to go out in the woods and hunt and get our meat. And my mother fixed for supper that night fried squirrel parts. With this white, you know, flour gravy. It was all white looking. And we had white cornmeal cornbread. And white canned hominy. The whole plate was one color. And we sat down at the table and my daddy actually had the nerve to bless that stuff. He said, oh, this is going to be so good. And he picked up a piece and started chewing on it. And my mother, my little brother, and I just looked at ours. And my dad started eating another piece. Oh, it's so good. It's just like me. It reminds me when I was your age. And I looked at my mother and I said, Mama, do you think the grocery store is still open? (laughs) She said, I think Emmett Valentine's is still open. And all three of us in unison pushed our plates over toward my daddy. And we got in our car, and we went to Ballantine's Superette, and we purchased a gourmet meal of Swanson's Frozen TV Dinners. And we came back home and had a wonderful dinner. So see, when people hear the that people like Adam and Donald grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. You know, they make assumptions. They ask us questions about all kinds of things. Did you see people making whiskey? Did you do this? Did you grow up hunting? And I have a very clear answer. Yes. 
I can hunt any grocery store within a hundred miles. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One of the reasons I am here today is because of a storytelling contest back home in West Virginia. When I was in college, I researched the West Virginia Liars Contest, a statewide storytelling contest that we have, and a pair of brothers who had won that contest 11 times together. Um, If you know storytelling in the U.S., you know one of those brothers. His name is Bill Lepp. And after researching that contest, I thought, well, these stories are a lot like the stories I grew up with out in Wayne County, West Virginia. So I started entering into that contest. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm now a four-time champion of the West Virginia Liars contest. <laughs> that doesn't work everywhere. <laughs> um, not many places will they clap. So it's good to be among family. Um, and so I, I could not, and I have judged the contest three times now, by the way. Um, so I couldn't come to a storytelling set that's called The Truth of the Matter without telling you a lie. So that's what this is. Just know in advance. <laughs> um, this story starts out with a folk song, an American folk song. It's one that you will know, and I require that you sing it with me. Please? Okay. That's an asking requirement. It goes like this. Take me out to the ball game. You got to take me out to the crowd. Oh, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. I don't care if I ever get back for its root. Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a game. Let me hear you for it. Uh Uh-huh. At the old ball game. I stand here in front of you on this stage as the worst baseball player who ever lived. It's not in my personal genetics. If I turned and looked down the hill towards Donald's tent, I could easily disappear behind this mic stand right here. I'm too ectomorphic to play baseball. I don't have the strength for it. And this was always a bit of a disgrace in my family because the best baseball player that we knew was Papa, my great-grandfather, my mom's mom's dad. Papa had grown up in Cincinnati, Ohio, or as he said, Cincinnati, Ohio. Papa grew up in Cincinnati in a little Jewish neighborhood there, first generation. And it was a little Jewish neighborhood that was right behind the outfield of the Cincinnati Reds baseball stadium. Cincinnati Reds baseball stadium. And this was long before the era of the enormous stadiums that we have today. And so when Papa was a little boy, he and all of his buddies could run across that newly bricked street, right over to the chain link fence on the outside of that outfield, press their faces right up against the chains, and watch as all the greats in the golden era of the Cincinnati Reds played. And after every game, they'd come right back to that newly bricked street and imitate everything they had seen them doing out there. And that's how he learned to play baseball. And apparently he was the best in the neighborhood, so good that as the family story goes, one year when he was an older teenager, he went to spring training with them. By the time I came around and tried to ask about these stories, the response was always, we're not talking about it. You don't want to hear about it. And they never would talk about it. Now, Papa grew up with that baseball upbringing, and when he was about 20, he moved up the Ohio River to my hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. And that's where he continued his love of baseball. He moved into a home on 9th Avenue 
which many years later, I would be born into a home on Ninth Avenue. He coached a number of generations of boys at the local Little League field. And by the time I came around, that third generation next, when I was a little boy, I'd come out of my house at 210 9th Avenue West. I could turn to the left and walk the six blocks over to Pawpaw's house. Three blocks down is where that neighborhood Little League field was. It was on the bottom half of an entire city block. It opened up towards the junior high and middle school for the neighborhood, Kamak, elementary and junior high. It opened up just like this, that diamond did, like it was welcoming the school toward it. That field was called David Glick Field. It was really called League 3, but they called it David Glick Field after the winningest coach in League 3 history, David Glick. Right behind home plate, there was a caboose, a real train caboose. I grew up in a railroading town, and they would take all the retired cabooses and donate them to local organizations. Every little league field in the town got one. And so if you were on the outside of the caboose, that's where you got your ticket to go into the ballpark. If you are on the inside of the caboose, that's where the concession stand was. So you get your ticket, you'd walk down the chain link fence, turn in the gate, go into David Glick Field. There are all these thick wooden bleachers painted blue every season, just like the sky. You'd walk right past them without ever looking because that was the visitor's side. <laughs> Keep going, concession stand on this side of the caboose, and then over here, more thick wooden bleachers painted blue. That was the home side. So I'd walk three more blocks past that to get to Pawpaw's house. I'd knock on the door. He would open the screen door just that wide, peek out. Hey, kiddo, come here. I'd slip in, and he would shuffle down the hallway till he got to the kitchen. When we got there, he'd always point. There was a built-in dinette set right there, built right into the wall. Looked like a booth at a restaurant. This is how I knew my great-grandfather was rich. I'd slide, slide right in there and trace the boomerang patterns on the Formica tabletop right there. <laughs> Mustard and turquoise colored. As he shuffled over, he'd reach up on top of the fridge and get a box of Cracker Jacks. And then, come on, kiddo. We'd go back out the front door. We'd walk the three blocks back. I would walk. He would shuffle. Back to David Glick Field. When we got there, we'd get our tickets. We would go in through that gate, past the visitor side, looking straight forward. Went past the front side, the concession stand, didn't need anything. We had our Cracker Jacks. Then we get to the home side. There was always a spot on one of those thick wooden blue bleachers, the same spot every time because Papa had sat in that seat to coach for several generations now. We'd sit right down. I would tear open the cardboard top of that Cracker Jacks and start eating it while Papa would lean forward and start coaching. Run, run, hustle. Hustle, kids. Hustle, he would call out. Ump, you blind. Slide. And I would just eat all the way down. Look, Papa, candy-coated peanut. <laughs> He'd scratch my head with his fist and say, you're one in a million, kiddo. One in a million. Slide. Go back to coaching. Now, it's important to note that Papa was never an official coach at League Three. He just always spoke his mind very loudly as to what was going on. And at the end of the game, we'd eaten all the way down to that little prize at the bottom, wrapped in wax paper with red and white and blue stripes. And back then, there were still good prizes at the bottom. I'd tear it open. It would be a temporary tattoo or a sticker or something to put in the spokes on my bicycle wheels to make noise as I rode around the neighborhood. I'd say, look, Papa, look what I got, a temporary tattoo. And he'd rub my head and say, you wanted a million, kiddo. Let's go home. 
And then he walked me the three blocks back down the street to get to my home. And that was my childhood. And it was wonderful. Until I turned eight. Because when you're eight, you no longer watch the games at League Three. You're old enough to play at League Three. And on my eighth birthday, none other than Papa was there tearing the door down. Come on, kiddo, we're going to get you signed up. He drugged me out of the house, literally, down to the car. He took me down to the sign-up. So I got signed up and put onto a team sponsored by a local law office, Green Ketchum, Bailey, and Tweel. We had blue shirts, white pants. We were the worst team in League 3 that summer. And I was the worst player on the worst team in League 3 that summer. I'm scrawny now, but back then I was also really short. I grew really late in life. So I was small, skinny, short. There was never a helmet that fit my head. They'd put it on and I'd just swim around in there like a bobble-headed doll. <laughs> the ball bat was always about as long as I was tall. and I was so scrawny I could barely hold it up. We would go to play a game and I would just pray that they wouldn't make it down the batting roster to get to me. But my name is Adam Booth. <laughs> so I'd have to go up there, and I was an ambidextrous child, so I was extra confused. Get up there, and there would be the wind-up and the pitch. It'd always go right past me before I had a chance to swing. Strike, they would call every time. So I'd go to this side and try it this way. Wind up the pitch right past me. Strike two. And if you grew up around Little League, you know there was always a kid like me. And to cheer up that kid, people would always lean forward and say, good eye, good eye. Hit the next one. I'll go back to this side. Wind up the pitch. Strike. That whole summer long, the ball hit me far more than I hit it. I was so bad. But it didn't matter, because at the end of every single game, who was waiting there? Papa. He had the prize from the bottom of the Cracker Jacks. He'd give it to me, and I'd get to open it up as we walked those three black blocks back home, and he'd say, you played a heck of a game, kiddo. You won in a million. <laughs> We'd get home, and I'd go in and not have to be in the torture of playing baseball or anymore that day. And that's how my summer of the eighth year went. And it was awful. And at the end of the summer, right as school had just started, I came home from my first week of school, came in the doors, and Mom said, I just got off the phone with Papa. He has a surprise for you. He wants us to go down there. So we walked the six blocks. Three blocks down, there was David Glickfield. Three more blocks, knock on the door, open it up. Come here, kiddo. I followed him shuffling back to the kitchen. I sat in the dinette set. He sat on the other side of it. I traced those boomerang patterns. And then he started to talk as we split some Cracker Jacks. You played one heck of a season, kiddo. You played your heart out. And so I got a little present for you. He reached into the pocket of his business suit and pulled out two thin slips of cardboard. He put them on that formica and slid them across. Those are for you. I looked. It was two tickets to the Cincinnati Reds. 
See, at the end of the summer, Papa and his wife would always go back to Cincinnati. It's when the high holidays were happening, and it was really hard to keep kosher in my town. And they would go back to get kosher foods for the holiest of the holidays that we were about to celebrate. And this year, you're going with us. I couldn't believe it. I was going to get to see the Reds, this team that was in my family blood, maybe, that no one ever talked about. I couldn't wait for the next week of school to finish. I waited every single day. Finally, Friday came along. I tore out of Kamak Elementary School. I ran those three blocks back down till I got to home. I flew through the front door. Mom, come on, we got to go. Let's go. Mom, it's Friday. I'm going to Cincinnati with Mo and Papa. Come on. I looked around the front room, and there I saw my mom. She was on the floor right there on the carpet sitting on her knees. Mom, let's go. We got to go. Where's my bag? I looked at her, and she was just looking down at the ground. She had tucked the edge of her dress underneath of her legs. She looked up at me and said, come here, honey. I said, Mom, no, we got to go. She opened up her arms. I said, come here, baby. I walked over to her and said, what is it? And as her wings wrapped around me, she began to cradle me to both sides. I looked right over her shoulder, and she said, Honey, I'm so sorry, but Papa died this morning. He died in his sleep. I looked over her shoulder. I was eight years old. I didn't understand what that meant. But I was old enough to understand that that day, I lost my biggest fan. And the other thing I lost was any desire to be around baseball. I didn't go back down to League Three. I didn't spend any time at David Glick Field. When my friends went down, I stayed back for years. I didn't get back to baseball for 15 years, actually. When I was in graduate school, I had moved to Cleveland, Ohio to go to school. And I had I needed to get a job over the summer to pay some of my bills. And at the end of my road, there was a little ice cream shop that had a sign in the window looking for part-time summer work. I went down there, filled out an application. The, the boss said, yeah, we would love to have you work here, but we're not hiring for this location. We just signed a contract to open 10 concession stands at the Jake. Jacobs Field, as it was called back then, the stadium for the Major League Baseball team in Cleveland. Would you want to work at a Major League Baseball stadium this summer? I thought on it and said, yeah, that sounds great. And so I started scooping ice cream and making ice cream down there at the Jake. It was great because that was the summer that I learned why baseball is called the great American pastime. Families came, and for those few hours, they were all happy all together. They'd come in, and there would be giveaways, little bobble-headed dolls, foam fingers that look like number one, jerseys of the different players that you could wear, there was the seventh inning stretch. There was the singing of that song. It was great. It was a great summer. And my boss would call us to schedule the next few homestands all at once. Toward the end of the summer, he called us all together and said, who can work the homestand the end of this week? We always want to know who we're going to play to see if it will be a good matchup. Who are we playing this weekend? And he looked down and said, the Cardinals. All right, that'd be good. Yeah, St. Louis, sign me up. Who can work the homestand at the beginning of next week? Who are we playing, boss? Blue Jays. They were good that season. Yeah. Who can work the homestand at the end of next week? Who are we playing, boss? The Reds. Cincinnati Reds? Of course. I thought, 
I'm going to get to see that team that I had never seen, that I got denied 15 years before, that team in my bloodline. You better sign me up to work that homestand. And just like when I was eight years old, the end of that weekend could not come fast enough. The first homestand passed, the next one, and finally Thursday came, the night before the Reds' homestand up there in Cleveland. I thought, I better call home and tell Mom that I'm going to finally get to see them. I dialed. It rang. Hello, she said. I said, Mom, it's me. I've got great news. You're never going to believe it. And she said, Honey, I got bad news. You better let me go first. What is it, Mom? She said, Well, honey, you know how our population is in decline back home. I said, Yeah. She said, You know how they're consolidating all the schools because they can't keep all of them open anymore. I said, Yeah. She said, you know how the school board only has one property big enough to build the new school where League 3 is? I said, yeah, I knew that. I knew they were going to tear that field down eventually. She said, well, honey, they've pushed up the demolition. They're going to tear it down at the beginning of next week. So there's going to be one last game. And so we're trying to let everyone know so they can try to come home for the last game in that old neighborhood. You think you could come home? See the Reds play? See the last game of my neighborhood Little League field? That was an easy choice. I went home. And when that last game came on Saturday, it almost didn't happen. Because where I come from in Appalachia, we get these great storms that roll in in the late summertime. The cloud ceiling is real low. The sky turns this kind of greenish-gray color, and you can hear thunder in the distance often. We had those clouds, but there was no lightning and no thunder, so the game could go on. When we made our way down to David Glick Field, a line came out of the caboose and stretched around three and a half sides of that block, almost all the way around. There were generations of people who had played baseball there. And the stories came out, and it was the greatest homecoming you could imagine. And we waited our turn until we got to the front of the caboose. Here's your ticket, the woman said. Thanks. And here's your raffle ticket. It's a raffle ticket? What for? She said, you haven't heard? We're raffling off the last chance at bat. in the very last inning today. I pushed the ticket back into the caboose, said, I don't want that. She picked it up and put it in my hand and said, come on, it's fun. I said, no, it's not. She gave it back to me and said, just take it. What are the chances it's going to be you, like one in a million? I said, don't say that. Put the ticket down in my pocket. I went in through the gate and walked past those visitors' bleachers that had been painted blue one last time. I stopped at the inside of the caboose and bought a box of Cracker Jacks. And when I got to the home side, wouldn't you know it, there was a space open right there, the space that Papa always sat in. I sat down and popped open my Cracker Jacks and started eating as those teams played the last game in the history of League Three. It was great. Really, really great. It was Dutch Miller used auto sales versus Heiner's Bakery. <laughs> they played against each other, inning after inning, and wouldn't you know it, at the end of the game, like any good story should have it, it was tied 6-6. Six to six. 
And the announcer came over that little speaker, that same kind of speaker that you'd see at the public pool. It was right over the dugout right there. All right, everybody, he called out. Get your tickets out. It's time to see who's going to be the one to have the last chance at bat. People pulled their tickets out. They got excited. There was excitement in the crowds of the bleachers. Energy also up in those clouds right above us. And someone said, come on, get your ticket out. I was just eating the Cracker Jacks. I pulled my ticket out. The winning number is zero. Zero. Four. Four. One. One. It was a six-digit number, though. There weren't a million people there, so I figured everybody had the same three numbers at the beginning. Three. But I had a three. Eight. Eight. And the final number is two. I put that ticket back into my pocket. Pushed it way down and kept eating my Cracker Jacks like I didn't know what was going on. Oh, look, a candy-coated peanut. Mm. (laughs) All around me, though, people were on edge. They ripped up tickets, threw them in the air. Oh, man, just a few off. They were checking each other's numbers. Who's got the ticket? They said, who's got it? I acted like I had no clue what was going on and just kept eating until I got to that little prize wrapped in the wax paper. I tore it open, and wouldn't you know, right inside, there was a little plastic baseball helmet. It was crimson-colored. And when I turned it around, right there over the bill was the insignia for the Cincinnati Reds. I knew it was a sign, so I had to get that ticket back out of my pocket. I held it up. I said, I got the ticket. And the people jumped up uh, out of the bleachers. They said, he's got it. He's got it. Get down on the field. They pushed me down there. When I got down there, they gave me a helmet. It actually fit this time. They gave me a genuine Louisville slugger, real wood. They pushed me down there to home plate. I got there. I held up the ball bat, and I looked out. And there on the pitcher's mound to throw out the final three balls was David Glick himself the winningest coach in League 3 history. So I bent my knees a little bit. I hit the ball bat on the ground. I had seen the pros do that. I looked out at him. The crowd was on the edge of their seats. The clouds were low. I nodded at David Glick. There was the wind up the pitch. It went right past me. Strike one, he called. Now, I was always more of an academic type than an athletic type. So I relied on that in that moment. I turned around and called to all the people out there, just like Casey at bat. Not my style. (laughs) And then I stepped over the plate and turned this way. (laughs) I choked up on the bat. I nodded to David Glick. There was the wind up the pitch. Fastball right past me. Strike two, he called. And from over here, someone said, good eye. Two strikes into the game, into the history of the field. I looked out at David Glick. I bounced a little bit. There was electricity in the stands as the people were on the edge of their seats. There was electricity in the sky as those clouds came even lower. I nodded at David Glick. There was the wind-up. There was the pitch. I brought the bat back and closed my eyes and brought it forward. (laughs) 
And as the ball hit the bat, in that order, there was a great crack. Thunder filled League Three. A bolt of lightning reached down. It touched the top of the gymnasium back there. Light filled up everything. The ball bat split in half right then. The top part twirled this way. Splinters went everywhere, and the ball disappeared. There was a moment of confusion when over here in the left field, the left fielder jumped up and said, I got it. And then the right fielder jumped up and said, no, I got it. (laughs) The center fielder followed suit. He jumped up and said, no, I got it. And everybody looked in the outfield as hail the size of baseballs (laughs) fell from those storm clouds right into their midst. David Glick said, no, there it is. He called from the pitcher's mound. We saw another ball flying through the air. It crashed into the window in the back of the gymnasium. Everybody turned and looked at the ump. He was not about to disagree with the winningest coach in League Three history. He called it in my favor, an out-of-the-park home run. I stood there. What do I do? Run, they said, run. I ran to first. I ran to second. I ran to third. And as I came around and got to home, I slid because I had never been there before. I scored the winning run. I jumped up and people were clapping and cheering. They had leapt up. You did it. They ran down onto the field and they lifted me up onto their shoulders. They were cheering my name over and over again. But even though I had hit it, I knew it was Papa watching down. So I looked up towards the sky to acknowledge my great-grandfather. And as I did, I saw up there in the fencing right above the batter's box (laughs) was stuck a baseball. I had foul-tipped it straight into the air but was not about to tell one soul. (laughs) David Glick called out to everybody, get into the gym for some shelter from the storm. And as the crowd carried me off of the field toward the gym, they started to sing. Take me out to the ball game. Take You keep singing. And as the crowd carried me off of the field, I thought of that little Cracker Jacks prize that I had won, that little baseball helmet. And I knew that it was a sign of Pawpaw rooting me on to win the game. You know, what are the odds of that happening? One in a million at the old ball game. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore attended the Palswood Storytelling Festival on July 23rd and brought back our recordings. Thanks to her for that. Tune in again soon 